Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price. I'm a medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital and immediate past president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series, I'll be interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, and some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country and indeed in the world to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to this episode of Lung Cancer Voices. Um, I'm in snowy Ottawa and I'm joined on the far coast by my friend and colleague, Dr. Cheryl Ho. Um, Cheryl is a clinical associate professor at University of British Columbia. She's um, a very well-known internationally medical oncologist specializing in lung cancer. And um, well, it's cloudy outside, but if I was to look up at the stars and I can't count them, just like I can't count the innumerable achievements that Dr. Ho has in her research career. She's the co-chair also of the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference. Really, I can't think of anyone better, Cheryl, than you to guide us through this podcast where we're going to talk about clinical trials and research and particularly a pragmatic discussion for people listening about how they might get involved in research and, and, and how they might navigate so that was a long introduction. Like, Thank well, you, Paul, for, for such a long <laughs> introduction. And um, we have snow here, but only on the mountains. So we have been skiing already, but it's nice and, you know, sunny and dry down in the regular part of Vancouver. So a little bit different than uh, in Ottawa. A little bit different. Yeah, it's getting cold here now. And of course, I, I forgot to mention in all of that preamble that also Dr. Ho's long, long-term supporter of Lung Cancer Canada and uh, a long-term member of our of our board as well. So so, Cheryl, listen, let's just jump in. Maybe you we'll just start at sort of entry level definitions here. What, what is a clinical trial and, and why are they important? Yeah, you know, I think it's good to, to level set a little bit so that we're all on the same page when we're talking about these things, because clinical trials have different connotations uh, to different different people. But actually, in the kind of grand scheme of things, really a clinical trial is a controlled treatment or or investigation, I, I guess I should say, looking at different populations so that we can learn more about different processes. And an example is uh, the ones that we're probably most familiar with is clinical trials that involve treatment of patients. So different experiments with uh, or looking at different experimental therapeutics or treatment options. But there are also clinical trials that are really earlier in, in the cancer Uh, treatment paradigm. So looking at even finding and diagnosing cancers, that's how we learned about screening for lung cancer or even prevention programs. So different treatment options for we know for patients we might know that are at higher risk in in modifying those risk factors or or even uh, clinical trials that look at um, side effects that we get from treatment and and how do we uh, do our best job to manage those side effects. So it incorporates a whole range of different options. And really, I think it's about that controlled environment so that the information that we generate from these clinical trials can actually be used in practice, be validated, and we make sure that we're making the right decisions to help improve things for, for patients. Right. Okay. And, and I, I guess that question, uh, the second part with why, why they're important is sort of self-evident from what you've, what you've said, that we're trying to ultimately make things better. And I think, yeah, it's, it's about country. also 
providing information to make it easier for decision makers. And by decision makers, I mean people who have responsibilities about thinking about budgets and funding and implementation of programs. So we want to give them the right tools to make the right decisions about healthcare. And so I think that's kind of how the clinical trial piece, you know, for us on the ground is about, can we do things better for patients? But in sort of the bigger picture, do we, are we able actually to evolve where our healthcare is sitting and what our guidelines are so that in, in the grand scheme of things, everybody's health improves. Right. Okay. So clinical trials, as you said, they cover a range of things from prevention strategies or new tests, incorporating new, uh, new investigations. But most commonly, and I think where we'll focus most of our discussion, was we're going to talk about clinical trials to try and improve treatments. So new, bringing new, new and better and safer and better tolerated treatments to help uh, lung cancer patients live longer and live better. So yes. if that's where we kind of focus on a discussion now, there are different phases of clinical trials or the different types of clinical trials. Could you just maybe Cheryl, just kind of walk, walk us yeah. through what, what sure. those are. And I think also to, to acknowledge um, all of the work that actually goes on before something actually gets to a clinical trial where we're offering the treatments to patients um, because thousands of drugs are actually investigated as potential therapeutic options. Um, but of all of those agents, only a couple of them actually make it to the point where we're willing to consider offering these treatments to patients. And that process in the lab to actually kind of getting things to the clinic can take years. And that's kind of sort of looking at what kind of toxicities we'd be worried about and, and those types of things in the models that we're doing before we actually offer these treatments to patients. And then when we get to the point where we say, okay, we think this drug has a reasonable chance of being effective. We think that it is reasonable to offer to patients because the safety profile is potentially acceptable based on what we've looked at in the the preclinical or before patient part, then we move into what we call phase one studies. And phase one studies are really about investigating what kind of dosing works for people, how safe is that treatment. And so it's usually done with a very small uh, number of patients to establish kind of that safety parameter. And, and, and I will say that oftentimes as we're doing phase one trials right now, there often have, we do sometimes incorporate biomarkers. Um, so we are trying to look for early signals of, of efficacy when we're doing those studies. And then so I'm, I'm going to give you a time out there, Cheryl, and, and uh, biomarker. Maybe you could just tell us what you mean when you say we're looking at right. biomarkers. Um, and, and I think it's to me, this just reflects what's happened over the past couple of decades is really in the past that we were offering all treatments to all patients, typically chemotherapy. And now that uh, things have evolved, we've identified that certain patients do better with certain specific treatments. And so when we're talking about a biomarker, we're looking for aspects of the cancer that are different or that have evolved to help us choose a treatment that might match to that. And, and so that can, for example, be looking at mutations, so mistakes in the DNA that can pick a right targeted therapy, or it can be looking at proteins expressed on cancer cells that might help us choose um, things like immunotherapy. So, so different ways of identifying the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. And I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast will have maybe listened to some other 
other um, episodes and, and it may be familiar with some of those subtypes like EGFR and, and ALK, etc. And if you're not, and I'm speaking a foreign language when you're listening, then check out previous episodes of Lung Cancer Voices. There's a little self-plug. They say self-praise is no recommendation, Cheryl, but um, <laughs> I, I'm... Uh, <laughs> there have been many excellent speakers uh, that have preceded me, so lots of great wisdom out there. <laughs> and just on, on the biomarker question again, just a follow-up. So you mentioned there, you know, that, that mutations or changes in the DNA's fingerprint that might, um, you know, mean that one treatment or one trial might be more appropriate for one group than another. Um, those are sort of factors that you're describing about the cancer. Are there, are there factors about the, the, the people themselves um, that that are kind of biomarkers that you might say, well, we want to, this clinical trial is just for women or just for men or just for older people or younger people or just for people who've who are, got kidney problems or just for people who are, you know, I don't know, born in July. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, Paul, you definitely uh, pick out something that is really important about uh, clinical trials and, and trying to apply them to general populations. Um, both of us participated in the study looking at, for example, immunotherapy in patients that perhaps were a little bit sicker or had more symptoms related to their cancer or were elderly and had other medical issues um, that, that actually kind of showed there was a, a potential benefit for immunotherapy for that population. So yes, definitely clinical trials that have um, eligibility criteria that kind of hone down on, on those specific um, features. Typically, that would be kind of sort of a laser fa later phase. So we've talked about phase one, which is kind of safety and efficacy. Phase two is kind of bringing out to a broader population just to see if we have that sort of signal. Does this work for these patients now that we've established it's safe and getting a bigger understanding of what the potential side effects of treatment are? And then kind of that next phase is that phase three study where we say, okay, well, here's the standard treatment, here's the new treatment, let's compare um, whether or not this new treatment actually can outperform or do as well as with less side effects, okay. the existing treatments. And so it's in that kind of phase where we may decide to hone down on, uh, in those later phases, we might decide to hone down on those specific populations that might so, benefit. And, and I think we'll, we'll talk a bit later in the podcast specifically about eligibility and some of the bugbears that we might have about about that or, or or some of the important issues about that but let me make sure I've captured what you're saying correctly Cheryl so phase one is new drugs um, well or drugs that come into the clinical trial for generally for very few people in the trial just trying to figure out what's the right dose that people should receive and and, and is it safe to do that once you've once you've reached that bar, crossed that bar, you've got the right dose and it looks like it's safe, then phase two is to a, a slightly bigger group of people. Mm -hmm. And that's really to see, okay, does this really seem to be an effective drug and, and safe still? And then you have to cross that bar to get to phase three, which is saying, okay, this drug, we've got drug, drug A, seems to, we've got the right dose we know it's reasonably safe or it's safe and, and it's effective but phase three is saying is it better than what we've already got is, or also I, if it's as efficacious as what we've already got but it has better safety profile okay so is it better than what we've already got in terms of either helping people to live right. longer or control the cancer for longer 
or to live better because of right. fewer side effects or, or hopefully uh, both. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Phase one, phase two, phase three. How easy is it for somebody to participate in a clinical trial? If, if there is a, somebody listening to this and they say, well, look, I, I would really be interested in, in taking part in research. How, how, how would someone set about that? Yeah, and, and you know, I think that certainly as physicians offering uh, treatments to patients, we want to offer these therapies um, or these clinical trials in part because there are opportunities for which we have some hope that things are actually going to help patients. However, we are restricted to some degree by something that are called eligibility criteria. Um, and that's defined by the clinical trial um, saying exactly which patients can participate and can and potentially should not participate. The main reasons why we have eligibility criteria is safety. Because some people might have pre-existing medical conditions that are gonna put them at higher risk of having side effects. So those patients ideally should may not be best uh, served by thinking about um, the clinical trial. and. Also, we're looking at, you know, sort of baseline lab tests and imaging and things like that to kind of also ensure that those parameters also would allow them to safely participate in treatment. The second piece about those eligibility criteria is we actually have to make sure that the results of our trials can help our decision makers and can help us as investigators make good decisions in the future. And so sometimes that means that patients can only participate if they've had no prior treatment or they've had one or two lines of treatment. And that's to ensure that the results that we are seeing from this clinical trial are due to that treatment, not to something that has happened prior in the treatment trajectory. So there's a lot of uh, pieces that are built in there to ensure that patients are safe and that our results are, are meaningful. Now, Cheryl, you must, have, you must have come across this in your clinic, and I have, and I suspect most of us clinicians have. And I find it very difficult to answer this question. So, so you're going to ask me. I'm going to ask you. <laughs> but, you know, we, we're not looking after, you and I are not looking after people with an ingrowing toenail, where it's a trial of something, and it's very important that that drug doesn't, you know, it doesn't have fatal consequences when we're talking about treating an ingrowing toenail. We're treating people who already are facing a life-threatening illness. And so people say to me, say, well, how come I'm not eligible for this study? And I'll say, well, it's about, you know, risk and safety. And they'll say, well, if I don't have any more treatment, then I'm going to die of lung cancer. And what's safe about that? So can't I have a right to, to try? And I, I find this a very difficult question to answer. Do, do, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Sorry to put you on the spot. Yeah, thanks, Paul. <laughs> you know, I, I think that it is always a bit of a balance, um, as you say, right? There is, of course, as oncologists, we're hopeful. Right? We wouldn't be doing these kinds of positions if we didn't have hope for the future, both on a patient level and a healthcare system level, right? All the clinical trials we do is not, it's both because we want to help people we take care of, but it's because we are, have hope that we're going to advance treatment by offering all of these different options. Um, so, so I think um, that as a start is, is probably aligns with what many of my patients um, 
um, right. are and hopeful that we can we can do something. But I think that also has to be balanced again with that risk of, of side effects and actually shortening how much time people have and actually potentially decreasing the, what their quality of life looks like uh, at end of life. So I think that's a, an open discussion, right? With whoever you're working with about their goals, their family goals, and all those kinds of pieces. And, and that kind of question is, is also challenging the clinical trials arena because we are governed uh, by very specific rules and regulations um, about the ethical treatment options. Um, so we have uh, research ethics boards that review all the trial options that we offer to patients to ensure that we're providing care in appropriate fashion, that we aren't putting people at increased risks, that we are acknowledging uh, to patients what those potential risks are, for, are before they uh, participate. So there is kind of that balance between being hopeful and then what's feasible. Yeah. I think that's a great comment, actually. You put it better than I could have. I, the, those research ethic boards are, you know, sometimes we get frustrated with the red tape of them, don't we? But but they they are important. They're there for an important reason because, you know, historically there have been, unfortunately, abuses of, uh, well, human rights abuses in, um, in the name of science, uh, you know, going back over the century. And, and so it, it there are those protections put in place. I think also research ethics boards are generally the the ethics behind an ethics board is they're also trying to help people and so and and acknowledge some of those risk balances are different in a cancer trial than they might be in a, in a toenail trial. And and I think it's also a viewpoint and insight, right? We come at it with a specific lens. The things that I find advantages of having feedback from the research ethics board is they're looking at it from a different perspective. And I just think it highlights things for us to really think about so that, you know, we have this sometimes sort of really focused on treatment um, um, vision and they kind of say, okay, step back, look at this, consider this, think about these aspects. And, and I think it's helpful. Yes, it's very irritating, <laughs> red tape and delays, but at the same time, you, you learn something from that and it, yeah. it helps you do things, um, I think, more thoughtfully. Okay. So we've got a few minutes left, but I, so I want to crunch through a couple of quick things. So firstly, you know, how, how does someone actually participate? If you, We've mentioned eligibility and the, the rules, but actually pra practically, if someone is interested in finding out if there's a trial for them, how would they do that? So I think number one is to ask your oncologist. Um, right there, they many, uh, well, pretty much all oncologists across Canada are connected to the Canadian uh, Clinical Trials Group. So that's one sort of um, opportunity to access information. I think also, if you are willing to travel for your, your care, acknowledging that to your oncologist as well, because they can look at different opportunities for you across the country, depending on, on sort of what's available. And there's also reliable websites that uh, people can look at. There's uh, clinicaltrials.gov that kind of outlines things. The only caution I have on that is that you will need to work with your oncologist on that because there's sometimes very fine criteria that, yeah. that kind of um, need to be worked out to see if that is even feasible. But always talking about it, raising the points, really important. Because even if that doesn't bring up the opportunity specifically you're thinking about, or the, you know, you and your family think about, that might raise other opportunities yeah. to explore. And I think we probably should say that you know sometimes I'll, I'll get approached and I'll say, well, look, I'd like to take part in this trial and it's open in Toronto. Can you open it in Ottawa, please? And sometimes we can, or we're about to. But but other times, you know, we have you know, like every cancer center running trials is, is an expensive and time consuming business. And there's a, 
workforce issue. Uh, and so generally we try and build a, a clinical trial portfolio. So we, so we have trials available for lots of, you know, as many different people within with lung cancer, whether it's early stage or advanced stage right. or immunotherapy or targeted therapy, but we may not have something open for everyone. And then it does take months and months and months and resources to open studies. So sometimes that travel travel is, uh, and, is and I yeah and I think you raise a good point right there's like multiple stakeholders when you're figuring out what trial you're going to run there's you know your own specific unit the population that you serve and trying to uh, help and then of course what's coming from the pharmaceutical companies and what their goals are so all of those have to kind of marry to yeah. open a trial in a specific center okay Okay, you mentioned pharmaceutical studies there. So um, pharmaceutical trials, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll bring that back in a second, because I want to ask you about some myths, because there are certain myths about clinical trials. And um, well, maybe we'll start with that one that industry, pharmaceutical industry, you know, they make billions of dollars in profits, they charge exorbitant amounts for their drugs, costs a lot of money, costs them for them to run the trials. But what about the myth that, or is it a myth even that, you know, clinical trials is all about making a dollar for the pharmaceutical company, and it's not about improving things for patients? You know, I, I think that we have to acknowledge that pharmaceutical companies are, you know, in a business, right? Their goal, their, their you know, sort of endpoints are about business. But in that business is also the goal of making things better for patients. So yes, there was one driven business component, but there's this other component where just that part of the business is driven by making the patient experience better, whether that patient experience is side effects or survival or, or what have you. So they're, they're, they're sort of not uh, divorced from each other, though those uh, particular two goals. And so, and, and I think Honestly, we can't do it without them. They're the ones that invest all of the research dollars to get the drug from the lab to a clinical trial. Our governments and other resources don't have that kind of funding to be able to do that. Uh, they're the ones that fund the clinical trials so our institutions can actually run them and take care of patients. So I think, yes, there is this business component piece, but, but we as clinicians leverage the part that helps us treat patients better. So we take a component of that and then try to try to move that needle forward. No, I agree with that. It's, it's sometimes there is, I mean, sometimes there are conflicts of interest that people have, but sometimes it's a, it, it looks like a conflict of interest because in a sense, we're all, we're all pulling in the same direction, but yep. maybe for different reasons. So as a, a patient will maybe wants access to the best new treatment. And the, as a clinician, I want to be able to offer the best new treatment. It's all about partnerships. And the pharmaceutical company, well, they've got their business model that they want to have the best treatment to offer and for the, for the provinces to pay for. And so sometimes it looks like that's all sort of, it is all jumbled up. But if it's, you know, if it's the best drug, then the pharmaceutical company will make their money back and you and I will be able to prescribe things and, and most importantly, the person taking the drug will benefit. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, everybody, a pharmaceutical company, oncologist, patients, our goal is is to help people at the okay. end of the day. And, and however that model works out, um, it's about the partnerships between all of us to make that possible. Okay. So what about another myth then, or is it a myth when people say about trials, say, I don't want to do a trial because I don't want to be a guinea pig. Right. And, and I think that speaks to that piece about all of the 
research that goes into getting a drug to the point where it actually can be offered uh, to patients. So there's this huge preamble. And then that eligibility criteria, we say, okay, if you want to participate, we'll, we'll allow you to participate, but we, we got to make sure that we manage that risk for you because we don't want you to end up with having um, sort of serious side effects. And then that third piece about the research ethics board that we have an independent body that oversees us to ensure that this is um, ethical and, and appropriate when we're offering it to patients. So there's a number of different layers in there that yes, to, to degree it is uh, potentially experimental therapy, but that there's many things that have gone bef before actually getting to that point of the trial. Yeah, and I, I don't want this to sound too flippant, but you know, guinea pigs are the guinea pigs. And, right. And, and then by the time the drug gets to the kind of trials we're talking about, you know, we, that phase is gone. Yeah. yeah. What, what about, I'm not sure this is a myth, but it's a concern that some people would have is, well, if I go into a clinical trial, am I just going to get a placebo? Right. And I think that's kind of just a, you know, level set. Placebo is where it, it has no active ingredients. So it's, a, you know, it's potentially something that might look it's like yeah. what, what, what the treatment is, but it isn't. And I think that's kind of for the control group. And so I would say that, for example, if you are being offered a treatment where there's an existing standard of care and they want to augment that standard of care, the placebo, and I'm putting this in quotation marks that no one can see, um, is, is that you might get standard of care treatment and then this additional treatment on top that actually isn't an active ingredient, whereas the experimental arm will get that standard of care with the active ingredient. So I think when there is existing treatment options, you know, in order for your oncologist to feel comfortable offering oh, it to can you. I, can I, that would, I just want to clarify that because you used a couple of terms there, experimental arm and standard of care arm. What you're meaning, just to clarify, is that when people in these kind of studies that you're talking about, people who enroll into the trial will get split into one of two groups. Right. And, and, and one group is the standard of care, which is the, the existing treatment. And the other group is the, is the experimental treatment, which has the, the new drug. Yeah, and so, sorry, I'm not, I'll... Yeah, no, and, and, and so I think as oncologists, you know, we have to have, we have to feel, feel comfortable when we open a clinical trial. And for me to be comfortable opening a clinical trial, I have to be able to offer my patients at least what standard treatment they would have normally gotten. And so that's kind of where there might be, for example, in that uh, division between that um, control arm, which is the standard of care and the experimental arm, there might be a placebo, but they still get active treatment. Or if they're participating in an earlier phase study, you know, there usually isn't a control, right? Because the, the question isn't about, you know, is this one better than the other one? The question is really about, does this drug have a signal? Is it going to help right. people? And it is clarified upfront if you participate in the consent form. So the people know exactly what they're getting into. Right, that's a great answer. And the ethics boards, that's the role they have as well. So that, uh, that you know, there's no trial that someone should go into where uh, any of their options is worse than what they would get if they weren't in the trial. Right. Okay, so, so placebo, guinea pigs. What about people who might say, oh, you're only offering me a clinical trial as a last resort? Yeah, and, and I think that goes back to our prior conversations about what the role of clinical trials is, because it can be in any different parts of the treatment journey from diagnosis to screening, um, all those kind of pieces. I think when 
when they've done studies asking patients who've participated in clinical trials what they've sort of felt from their experience. They had report, patients have reported that they felt that the quality and personalized care on the trial was actually beneficial to them. And actually studies that have looked at outcomes for patients have suggested that the outcomes are at least as good, if not potentially better for people who participate in, in studies. So I think it's not necessarily a, a last resort and may offer different advantages depending on the situations for various people. Okay. Wow. Well, Cheryl, look, we've done a little speedy tour through clinical research there. Uh, what are clinical trials? Why are they important? The difference between phase one, phase two, phase three, uh, why there are eligibility criteria and biomarkers in different populations and the role of an ethics board to make sure that it's conducted properly, try to bust some myths, that guinea pigs and placebos, etc. I mean, a tour de force. In closing, Cheryl, would you what would you say to people if they if now you know they've heard this and they you, you've mentioned in terms of resources you know speak to your oncologist, clinicaltrials.gov. Are there other sort of final words of advice you would give people if they kind of hear this and think, oh, I'd I'd like to look more into this? You know, I think patients and their families are their own best advocates. And that the best way to get the care that you want is to talk about things and to ask questions. And those questions could be, can I participate in a clinical trial or can be other things? And that ultimately, as, as we've talked about through, the, through this whole podcast, our goals are about the best options for a patient in, in their treatment journey, both from the oncologist side, from pharma, um, from the patients. And so all working towards that common goal can involve clinical trials, might, might not, but the piece that works the best about that is is that open dialogue and discussion. Great. Couldn't agree more. And hope. Always hope. Right. Yeah. And I well, I mean, I think that's a good a good place to close that when when some people, you know, might say, well, this I'm doing a clinical trial, but it's not going to help me. I mean, that's not true, is it? We don't offer trials to people thinking that this is going to help people in the future, but it's got no chance of helping you. That we just don't do that. It's just, no, I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's stupid. You know, if we offer someone a, a research study, it's because we want it to help them directly. Yes, we know it will help. It will help in on in a bigger picture, and it will help people down the line in the future if we learn that this drug is effective, or if we learn that it's not effective, or mm -hmm. if we learn it's safe or dangerous. But, but um, yeah, hope is really important that we're not we're not doing this for for giggles. It, you know, it's it's important stuff. Terrific. Dr. Cheryl Ho, research, uh, extraordinary, researcher extraordinaire and one of our national leaders in lung cancer. Thank you so much for taking the time. As always, at the end of these podcasts, I say to people listening, if you have heard something here that, that you know, has, uh, you know, touched your heart or touched a nerve and you want to know more, um, you could check out the lungcancercanada.ca website or speak to your own, your own health team. And, um, Otherwise, um, please tune in for the next episode of the Lung Cancer Voices podcast. And finally, I would like to announce a really happy development in the Lung Cancer Voices podcast. In early 2023, we're launching the French language version of the Lung Cancer Voices podcast, which will be hosted by Dr. Nathalie Daboul from Montreal. So please uh, check that one out and tell your uh, Francophone uh, friends 
that this will be coming. Great. Bye for now. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.